Welcome to the Southbank Centre podcast. I'm Ted Hodgkinson, Senior Programmer for Literature and Spoken Word. Today, we're bringing you some of our best bits from 2017's London Literature Festival. This year's festival encompasses the 50th anniversary of Poetry International, an expanded children's programme, Young Adult Literature Weekender, and explores how literature and poetry can remind us of our shared humanity in a world on the brink. A warm welcome to our audience here at Southbank Centre's Royal Festival Hall. A welcome also to any demons watching this from your laps. Please do make yourself comfortable. Because tonight, this wood-lined hall is an arc that will take us across choppy waters on a journey to a parallel world that closely echoes our own. And it is a pleasure of mythic proportions to introduce tonight's special event. 22 years after Lyra burst into our lives in Northern Nights, I'm delighted that tonight Philip Pullman is revealing La Belle Sauvage. In one sense, a prequel, but perhaps more fittingly described in the author's own words as equal, the first volume of a new trilogy, The Book of Dust. Tonight, Philip Pullman is in conversation with the wonderful Karis Matthews, award-winning musician, author, and broadcaster, who programs and hosts a weekly show on BBC World Service and BBC Six Music. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Philip Pullman and your host for this evening, Karis Matthews. Thank you. Thank you very much, and good evening, and very glad you've come to join us tonight. The one image that comes to my mind when somebody mentions Philip Pullman happened in front of the house on a piece of grass in Ladbrook Grove. And it was sort of a, a, a tumbleweed of youngsters, about 12 or 13 years of age, and they were fighting. And I went to see why they were fighting to try and sort of simmer down, you know. And they were fighting over one of your books. <laughs> So I let them carry on <laughs> and said, well done, everybody, because that's the most important thing, I think, and that's why we're all here tonight. <laughs> I think we should start with a question then, if that's all right, Philip. The new trilogy comes 22 years after Northern Lights was published. You said at the time that the story of Lyra wouldn't become a saga. What changed your mind? I was convinced when I came to the end of his dark materials that that was the end of that story. And I wasn't wrong because it was the end of that story. A few years after that, I published a little book called Lyra's Oxford, which is my publisher's idea of a little book about the city where I live and the city where Lyra lives and their differences and the way things work for her and in her city. And one of the things I'd like to, I thought I wanted to put into that book was little scraps of printed information that had somehow found their way into the book. There was a postcard, there was a, a fragment from a guidebook, there was a map, there was a, a brochure from a shipping company advertising a cruise to the Levant with no explanation. I just put them in because I thought they were quirky and funny and people might see a connection if they looked. And one of the things I put in was this brochure for the shipping, uh, the cruise. And I thought it would be fun to write on that and have an appointment set up in a cafe in Turkey. And I said no more about it, but that set 
set a story sort of growing in my mind. And I saw that it was a story that would certainly involve Lyra and it would take her to a different part of the world. When I was writing his dark materials, my, my imagination was completely captured by the North, the Arctic, where I'd never been. And I thought I'd love to go and see it and to feel that immense cold and the darkness. And I didn't have any money. So I wrote to a, um, a sort of foundation that gives authors grants. And I told them what I was doing and said, could I have some money? And they said, no, I can't, go away. <laughs> <clears throat> so instead, I took the decision to go to the Bodleian Library in Oxford and, and read all about it. And I don't think it did too badly. So this trilogy will take Lyra and the story to a quite different part of the world. For those who haven't yet had the chance to sit down and devour this new book, shall we in a nutshell tell people what it's about? It's set 10 years before Lyra is still a six-month-old baby. Yeah. I'll read a little to give you a, a flavour of the of the story. Malcolm is about 11 years old and he lives with his parents in a pub called The Trout, which uh, does exist uh, on the Thames near Oxford. He's got a boat, a canoe called La Belle Sauvage, and he paddles this canoe down the river and along the canal and through all the watery streams that go all the way through the city. On one of their little expeditions, he and his demon, who is called Asta, stop by the side of the canal to look at some great crested grebes that are nesting. But then they see a man coming along and he's doing something, he's looking for something. And the man's demon, a cat, climbs up into the tree and they're watching him and he doesn't know he's being watched. Asta saw his demon, a cat, moving among the lowest branches of the oak tree while he stood below and looked up and down the towpath. Then the cat made a quiet noise. The man looked up, she jumped down to his shoulder, but in doing so, she dropped something out of her mouth. The man uttered a little grunt of dismay and his demon scrambled to the ground. They began to cast around, looking under the tree at the edge of the water among the scrubby grass. What did she drop? Malcolm whispered. Like a nut, about the size of a nut. Did you see where it went? I think so. I think it bounced off the bottom of the tree and went under the bush there. We could go and help, she said. Malcolm was torn. He could still see the birds and he very much wanted to watch them, but the man seemed as if he needed help and he was sure Asta's eyes would find the thing, whatever it was. It would only take a minute or so. But before he had the chance to do anything, the man bent and scooped up his cat demon and made off quite quickly down the towpath as if he decided to go and get help. At once Malcolm backed the canoe out of the reeds and sped forward to the spot under the oak tree where the man had been standing. A moment later he jumped out holding the painter and Asta in the shape of a mouse shot across the path and under the bush. A rustling of leaves, a silence, more rustling, more silence, while Malcolm watched the man reach the little iron footbridge to the piazza and climb the steps. Then a squeak of excitement told Malcolm that Asta had found it and squirrel form she came racing back up his arm and onto his shoulder and dropped something into his hand. It must be this, she said, it must be. At first sight it was an acorn, but it was oddly heavy, and when he looked more closely he saw that it was carved out of a piece of tight-grained wood. Two pieces, in fact, one for the cup, whose surface was carved into an exact replica of the rough overlapping scales of a real one and stained very lightly with green, and one for the nut, which was polished and waxed a perfect glossy light brown. It was beautiful, and Astor was right. It had to be the thing the man had lost. Let's catch him before he gets across the bridge, he said, and put his foot down into the canoe. But Astor said, wait, look. 
Her face was looking down the canal, and as Malcolm followed her gaze, he saw the man reach the middle of the footbridge and hesitate, because another man had stepped up from the other side, a stocky man dressed in black with a light-stepping vixen demon, and Malcolm and Asta could see that he was going to stop the raincoat man, and the raincoat man was afraid. They saw him turn and take a hasty step or two and then stop again, because a third man had appeared on the bridge behind him. Both of the men looked full of confidence, as if they had plenty of time to do whatever they wanted. They said something to the raincoat man, and each took one of his arms. He struggled for a futile moment or two and then seemed to sag downwards, but they held him up and walked him across the bridge into the little piazza below the church tower and away out of sight. His cat demon hurried after them, abject and desperate. Put it in your insidest pocket, Asta whispered. Malcolm put the acorn into the inside breast pocket of his jacket and then sat down very carefully. He was trembling. They were arresting him, he said. Now, meanwhile, in another part of Oxford, a scholar is working in the Bodleian Library. Dr. Hannah Ralph sat up and pressed her hands into the small of her back, stretching painfully. She had been sitting for too long. She wanted to walk briskly for half an hour, but time with the Bodleian alethiometer was limited. She could take a walk later. She bent from side to side, loosening her spine. She was sitting in Duke Humphrey, the oldest part of Bodley's library in Oxford, and the alethiometer lay on the desk in front of her, among a scatter of papers and a heap of books. The work she was doing was threefold. There was the part she was supposed to be doing, the part that justified her time with the instrument, which was an investigation into one of the range of meanings. Already she had added two more flaws, as she thought of them, to the levels of significance reaching down into the invisible depths, and she was on the track of a third. Secondly, there was the secret work she was doing on behalf of an organization known to her as Oakley Street, she supposed from its address, though there wasn't an Oakley Street in Oxford, so it was possibly in London. She'd been recruited for this two years before. She realized that Oakley Street was a branch of some sort of secret service. She read the papers, and it wasn't hard for an intelligent person to see what was going on in the politics of her country. The questions Oakley Street asked her were varied, but a lot of them had trodden recently towards, cl closely towards subjects that were forbidden by the religious authorities, and she knew quite well that if anyone were to find out what she was doing, she would be in serious trouble. And thirdly, and most urgently, there was a question she'd been asking for a week. Where was the acorn? She had no idea how the message in its little carrier arrived so dependably behind the stone in the university parks where she was co to collect it, but it should have appeared some days ago and now she was becoming anxious. Hence the question she was asking. It hadn't been easy to frame, and the answer wasn't easy to interpret, but then they never were. But this afternoon, as the grey light faded from outside the 600-year-old windows of Duke Humphrey, and the little lamp above the desk glowed more warmly, she thought she had the first part of an answer. After a week's labour, she had three stark images. Boy, in, fish. If she were a really practiced reader, each of those ideas would be surrounded by a nimbus of qualifying detail, but there it was. That was all she had to go on. She pulled a clean piece of paper towards herself and drew lines downwards to divide it into three columns. The first one, boy, she left blank. She knew no boys except her sister's four-year-old son, and it wasn't going to be him. She left the in column empty too. How many inns did she know? Not many, actually. She liked to sit in a beer garden with a companion at a glass of wine, but only in good weather. Fish, that was probably the easiest to start with. She wrote down as many names of fish as she could think of. 
Herring, cod, stingray, salmon, mackerel, haddock, shark, trout, perch, pike. What else was there? Flying fish, stickleback, barracuda? Chub, said her demon, who was a marmoset. Down it went, though it didn't help. Tench, he said. Hannah yawned, stretched again, stood up and walked slowly down the length of the library and back, thinking as strongly as she could of absolutely nothing. There came into her mind the image of a peacock on a river terrace and herself among a group of friends and the peacock's effrontery in snatching a sausage roll out of the very fingers of her neighbor and then trying to run away with it encumbered by his ridiculous tail. That had happened years ago when she was an undergraduate. Where had that happened? What was the name of the inn? Was it an inn or a, a restaurant or what? She looked up at the staff desk. The assistant was checking some request slips and there was no one else around. Hannah got up and walked along to her. And she said, I think I'm going gaga. What's the name of that pub with the river terrace and the peacocks? Where is it? The trout, said her assistant. It's at Godstow. Of course, thanks, stupid of me. Hannah tapped her forehead and went back to her desk. She worked on for another half an hour and then returned her books and the alethiometer to the desk. Anne pressed the buzzer, which would sound in the senior assistant's office. The alethiometer was kept in a safe in there and the senior assistant had to put it away himself, which he did with an air of solemnity that Hannah enjoyed very much. But she didn't stay to watch this time. She gathered her papers together, put them in her bag, and left the library. The trout, she thought, tomorrow. Philip, just listening to you, reading that you tend to write and you're not able to write when there's music playing mm. which leads me to think that you, you're setting up a certain rhythm as you write yeah that's absolutely true every writer's different and some writers manage to work with music playing and some like classical music and other people like loud rock music and and so on um i can't work at all when there's music playing because i'm listening to the rhythm of the music and the rhythm of the prose you're writing has to be carefully judged. I'm conscious of the rhythm of the next sentence before I'm conscious of what it's going to say. Really? Yes, you know, I know it's got to go dum 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 de dum or something like that. When did it start? How old were you when you started thinking, you know, this is, this, this is really appealing to me, this is talking to me, I might want to do this? When I was about 12, there was a strange incident in my school in Harlech in North Wales. There was a new teacher at the school. His name was Cillian Hughes and he was teaching um, RE. And this was an RE class. And he drew a map of the journeys of St. Paul or something on the board. So we started copying the, the map of St. Paul's journeys. And the door opened and in came six big boys. You know, they had spots and bristles and their knuckles were dragging on the ground. <laughs> and we didn't know what they'd come in for. So there was a bit of a mysterious thrill went through the room and these big boys went to the back of the room and then Cillian Hughes started to conduct them and they didn't sing they spoke a cold coming we had of it just the wrong time of the year for a journey and such a long journey the ways deep and the weather sharp the very dead of winter though I didn't know it it was the beginning of T.S. Eliot's poem The Journey of the Magi I was utterly enthralled by this the sound of it you see the music um, what the words meant I could sort of vaguely work out and, and, and see, but, but the, the sound of it, 
some of those phrases struck to my mind and came alive and they still bring a shiver down me as I think of them now. At dawn we came down to a temperate valley, wet below the snow line, smelling of vegetation with a running stream and a watermill beating the darkness. When the sense of that sort of thing hits you, you suddenly wake up to a hunger that you didn't know you had. And nothing will be do to satisfy this hunger, but more of this whatever it was that you heard. That's how I first realized that poetry was important for me. And it wasn't until after I'd left Oxford, actually, that I started writing a novel. So when you're writing as an author, do you try and hush your voice? Are you trying to be serene and anonymous? This is a very interesting question, which would take several lectures. <laughs> uh, it's not my voice that tells the story. It's the voice of the narrator, who is a character in my mind, just as much as Malcolm and Lyra. The voice that tells the story is not the author's voice, it's the narrator's voice. There are so many people who go into the making of a book, you see. There's the real author. There's the author the book seems to imply and the readers seem to infer, they might infer from the book that I'm a bit of a show-off and a pompous knoll and so on, I don't know. That might, might be what they're uh, inferring. There is the, the actual reader, there's the reader the book seems to expect, and so it goes on. The needn't all be the same thing. Um, it might be a professor of philosophy who's reading the Beano, for example. He's the real reader, but it's not the reader the Beano seems to expect. <laughs> <laughs> And all these people play their part in, in the democracy of reading, which is an idea that's been, had me in its grip for a long time. When you write, you are a despot. <laughs> you are a dictator. You have absolute power of life and death. Let me quote you. Oh. I am a strong believer in the tyranny, the dictatorship, the absolute authority of the writer. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and the painter, and the singer, and the musician, and the composer, every artist. But when it's published, when the book is out there in the bookshops and when people are reading it, my control finishes. I can't control how someone reads a book. I can't possibly tell them, no, you, you got that bit wrong. It's not like that at all. You haven't understood it. Go and read it again. Some writers do, you know. Apparently, William Golding was very keen to tell people off who were reading his books wrongly. <laughs> but I, no, the democracy of reading is when all these characters, the real reader, the expected reader, the implied author, the so on, all these characters take part in this great democracy. And the meaning of the book is what comes out of it. You've also said every story has its own sprites. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about, all these different voices? That's right, yeah. When I'm asked, are you an atheist? I say yes. But I do actually believe in ghosts, fairies, hobgoblins, <laughs> nature spirits of every kind. <laughs> because they help me write. They help me tell the stories. I think every story is attended by its, its own particular sprite. And if I want to tell the story properly, I've got to understand that and be sort of on side with the sprite. And the sprite isn't the, the narrator in the, in the case of this, this story, isn't old or young or male or female or wise or stupid. It's all these things together. I read a little story and I wanted to know what you were like in, in college. You won a scholarship to Oxford and there's a, there's a story of you getting drunk and climbing out of your window or, or was it into your window? Mm. Were you quite wayward as a student? I wouldn't have dared climb out of the window if I hadn't been drunk. It was a top floor window in my college, which was Exeter College. 
and there was a very big parapet and a very wide gutter inside it, so it was pretty safe, really. And we used to climb out of it and go along to the next staircase if there was a party going on there, because they wouldn't, wouldn't let you in from the ground floor, but if you go in through the bathroom, they didn't know you were coming. <laughs> so um, that's my, that was uh, um, the extent of my wickedness at Oxford, I think. What I love about your books, they seem to wriggle. They make it awkward to try and compartmentalize. They appeal to many ages. It's not gender specific at all. Mm. And you have very, very strong female characters. Mm. Some that are unstereotypical as well in, in this new book, The Bewitching Mrs. Coulter. Mm. And if I can read my writer now, not in whom the flame of motherhood burns very brightly. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I just wondered where this came from, if indeed it came from anywhere, this love of strong characters, regardless of gender. I'm thinking here about Sally Lockhart Sally, as well. Yes, exactly. And Leela, the firework maker's daughter. I think it comes from being a teacher. I was teaching children of Lyra's age for about 12 years. I saw lots of Lyra's. She's the sort of girl that I, I was teaching. There's a Lyra in every class. There's a Will in every class. There's a Malcolm in every class. I don't write in the first person. The voice that tells the story is always looking at sort of both outside and inside. So the voice can tell us what Lyra is thinking, but it can also say in many ways she was a coarse and greedy little savage, <laughs> as I do at the beginning of Northern Lights, which would never occur to Lyra to say of herself. So it's, it's a dual thing. As a songwriter, I've been hanging out with other songwriters, there's an awful lot of pinching of ideas that go on from conversations, little yeah. snippets of conversations. Yeah. And I mean, the, um, Malcolm, what he loves about, he's this curious young chap, and what he loves about yeah. hanging around the inn is catching all these kind, different kinds of conversations from yeah. different kinds of people working in you know, different elements in the world. Yes, I do, but I'm quite happy to steal from anywhere. I'll steal from other books, I'll steal from uh, the television, I'll steal from movies. Um, if it works, use it, steal it. I have stolen have... ideas. This is another quote I've got. I have stolen ideas from every book I have ever read. <laughs> Philip but you have, to, you have to make it your own. You know, it's no good just going in there and helping yourself to a paragraph. That's no good at all. Uh, um, you, you have to take it and do something with it. I'd like to quote you again. Children are not less intelligent than adults. What they are is less informed. Today, 2017, bringing up children is an impossibility because of so much information. What are we going to do? <laughs> well, we better not stop having children. Uh, all the world will come to an end. Yeah, it is, it is very difficult. And looking at the way my children's children now, my grandchildren, are so free and familiar with their iPads and their phones and so on, I don't know. It would have had a big effect on me, I'm sure, if I was, if I'd had that sort of equipment around me when I was young. Would I have read as much? Yeah, probably I would. We don't seem to have now the freedom that I had when I was a boy. We could spend all day walking over the hills or playing on the beach or walking up the river and climbing up the waterfalls and just fooling about, either on, you know, on my own or with my friends. That sense of landscape that the living in North Wales put into me is something that depended on my parents not being too bothered about fretting. As we go through life, and as life is changing so quickly, I just wondered whether you're becoming more cynical. This book definitely feels a lot darker. 
yes to the fact that it's a bit darker. I don't know that I'm becoming more cynical. I hope I'm not, because I think cynicism is the death of all sorts of things. Skeptical, perhaps. I'm not going to stop hoping, because hope is, not, is the name not of a temperament, but of virtue. I preached a sermon, Keris. I oh. preached a sermon in the pulpit of St. Mary's Church in Oxford, the University Church, at the, the invitation of the vicar, who was a very brave man. And um, <laughs> I, I, I began by telling them about pale gas. And I know about pale gas because we had a preacher come to our church in Clanbedder when the usual vicar was away, you see. And this guy was a youngish sort of guy, very serious, very earnest. He said, I want to tell you about pale gas. <laughs> Sin is like a pale gas. that seeps into every corner of your lives. P-A-L-E-G-A-S. Pride, anger, lust, envy, gluttony, avarice, and sloth. <laughs> and when he... <laughs> I never forgot about pale gas. Is this... <laughs> And now that you've heard it, neither will you. <laughs> so I preached to this, this my sermon, <laughs> told them about pale gas. And I went on to talk about the, the virtues, the great virtues. The one I stressed was hope. And I said, of all the virtues that the Christian church celebrates at the moment, one of them is faith. Well, I think we can do without that. I would like to substitute curiosity for faith. Aye, amen. Uh, but one I would strongly keep is hope. Original sin is to be celebrated. Yeah. That's the story I was telling in His Dark Materials. The story that is told in the book of Genesis in the Bible and is told in John Milton's Paradise Lost. The story of the temptation of Eve by the serpent and the, the fall. Eve eats the apple from the tree or the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the point. That's the thing she's been forbidden to have. The knowledge of good and evil. But she eats the fruit and she sees things and she understands things she didn't understand before. And she persuades Adam to eat it as well. And he eats it. And the first thing they realize is that they're naked. They hadn't realized this before. This is a perfect example of a myth. And a myth is something, not just an old story that happened once and we can forget about it because it's never true and it's all about fairies and things. A myth is something that is reenacted in everybody's life. And we reenact the story of the temptation and the fall, the coming of knowledge of good and evil in our adolescence. This is why it's such an important time. This is when we begin to wake up and be curious about politics and about art and about all these things, curious about sexuality, about what we feel when we're in the presence of someone we're attracted to, all those things. That is the knowledge of good and evil. And to try and label it original sin seems to be almost blasphemous. This is a great and glorious part of being human. We should celebrate. Yeah. yeah. Again, a quote, life is immensely valuable and this world is an extraordinarily beautiful place. We should do what we can to increase the amount of wisdom in the world. Yeah, that's what I think. And that is what I think my characters come to think. It's about realizing, yes, sort of self-remembering, remember, remembering that we're alive, remembering we're here. The next project, the Demon Essays, would you like to tell us a little bit about that to look ahead? Yeah, Demon Voices was a title suggested by my ingenious publisher. For, for a long time now, people have been asking me, 
to give a speech about this or a lecture about that or talk about something else or, or, or write an introduction to this book or a, an essay on something. Or, or, and we collected a lot of my nonfiction, not all of it by any means, but the, the, the bits that concern storytelling. Because storytelling is a very interesting thing to talk about and I've thought about it for a long time. They're put together in a book called Demon Voices, which is coming out in um, next month, in a, in a few weeks' time. And I'm, I, I'm very pleased with it too. Um, I, I was a bit doubtful about the thing originally because I didn't write them to be written and uh, to be printed and collected and read. I wrote them to be listened to. Um, but there they are, and um, I hope people will enjoy it if they're interested in stories. It's time to ask you if you want to ask Philip some questions. But before that, just one more question before I forget, because I didn't bring a pen on here. The demons and the shape-shifting Asta hmm. and your childhood in Wales, did you read the Mabinogion and the, did you enjoy them, the shape-shifting characters? Oh, and the parallel universes, the underworld, and, and this, you could shift through yeah. these different worlds. Were they a huge influence? The Mabinogion is a huge and wonderful compendium of all kinds of stories. It's one of the great treasures of the British Isles. And like the great collections of stories from England and Scotland and Ireland, the Mabinogion ought to be published in two ways. It ought to be bound in gold <laughs> and kept as a national treasure and it ought to be printed cheaply but well on good paper and given free to every parent, every new parent. Yeah. The great folk tales, including Grimm's tales, of course, they need to be part of all our lives, and especially nursery rhymes. The real foundation of any understanding of language is sitting on your parents' lap before you can even understand what's going on and hearing songs like, hey diddle diddle, the cat and the fiddle, the cow jumped over the moon, the sound of it is lovely. You have a sense of fun and joy and excitement in language and you go, 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 go joining in. And it doesn't matter because you're having fun and you're loving it. And your experience of language is one of being surrounded by love and magic and sound and beauty. And, and that's, that's, that's the basics. When, politics, when politicians talk about the basics and they mean spelling and punctuation, you can correct those at the last minute on a word processor. That's not basic, but the love of language you get from hearing stories and singing nursery rhymes when you're young is the most basic and most useful and most important thing you'll ever have. My name's Emily and I'm 17. I was wondering, Philip, if you could have a demon, what would it be and why? Great question. <laughs> well, my demon appears somewhere. Um, <laughs> Don't you remember? She is a bird, I think. She's a bird of the, of the crow family. One of those birds that steals things. Um, <laughs> as I explained earlier, I'm ruthless about that. And the thing about what birds steal, they're happy to steal a diamond, they're happy to steal a bit of aluminum foil of no value at all. But it shines and it sparkles and it's pretty. If you're a, a storyteller or a songwriter or a novelist and you hear something intriguing, it doesn't matter where you hear it, it might be Shakespeare, it might be EastEnders. But if it's intriguing, it sets off a train of thought, what if, suppose, I wonder what happened. That's what I mean by stealing things. So that's why I think my demon is probably a shabby, <laughs> knock-kneed, feathers missing, <laughs> dust-covered old <laughs> raven. <laughs> Great one, Emma. <laughs> Shall we have a question from my left here? Hi, my name's Anna. 
I read um, Northern Lights when I was 10, and when Roger's part in the story came to an end, I cried for about a week. I'm probably still crying about Amber Spyglass. But um, when you write something sad that befalls one of your characters, particularly one that you feel very close to, how does that make you feel as a writer? Well, I felt the same. It was very hard. And if I write something that happens to be funny, I laugh. And if I write something that's exciting, I want to know what's going to happen next. Um, I think unless the writer feels these things, there's not much likelihood of the reader feeling them. But he had to go. Let's have another one from up here. Uh, hello, my name is Benjamin. Hi, Benjamin. And by the way, uh, that's a very strong name. Okay. I read your book and I want to say thank you for lots of hours of really, really lovely reading. But I have one, maybe a little fear, if I could say that. Now, I'm a deaf person myself. And when I read your book, I could be wrong, but when I was reading it, there's not much representation of disability in it. And I was a little bit concerned. Lyra and her pet demon, they talk together, they have this wonderful communication. And I was thinking to myself, as a deaf person, I can't hear, I can't speak, I use sign language. So could you give me some kind of explanation from Lyra's world or from your book? How would a deaf person communicate with their particular demon? Good That's question. a very intriguing question. Um, uh, and it has the distinction of being a question I've never been asked before. I sometimes, uh, when I'm giving a talk, I say, I'll answer any question you like as long as I've never been asked that question before. And that, um, well, that would certainly count. Thank you for that question. The answer is, of course, I don't know, but they'd find a way. And it would probably involve a sort of sign language. I think it almost certainly would. Um, the question then is what uh, form would a demon best assume uh, that could sign? It would have to have, or she or he would have to have hands of some sort. Of some kind. Ask Benjamin hmm. what, what his demon would be. My demon would be an ever-changing demon. <laughs> Greedy. <laughs> I just can't decide what demon I want. <laughs> I have the same problem. And that's why I'm worried about how I communicate, because I can't decide what kind of demon I'm going to have. Yes. <laughs> yes. But so far, the best choice I've come up with is a monkey, because they have the, the, the same hand movements as a human, so they could yeah. communicate. Thank you. But thank you very much for that question. Let's have another question from this side. What's your favorite myth? Yes. My favorite myth, ah. Great question. Mine's Norse. Norse myths, oh, oh I see, yes. Well, I think my favorite myth is the one I most enjoy telling, which is the story of Oedipus and the Sphinx, the riddle of the Sphinx, and how he killed his father and married his mother without knowing what he was doing. That's a wonderful story. <laughs> you can't go wrong with that. You just can't go wrong with that one. for so many years and we're getting the I, I'm, I'm wondering what kind of teacher were you <laughs> did you start jumping about and raising your voice and no I told them stories in the way I've been talking this evening calmly and quietly with no uh, <laughs> no gymnastics 
I was very lucky because I taught before the national curriculum came in and before all these damn SATs tests came in and before all this nonsense about filling in forms and measuring children and all this sort of <laughs> terrible rubbish that passes for education now. Children need... Yeah. Children need in school, what in education, what they have always needed, which is to hear stories, to hear poems, without being pestered for a response. Read them poems, read them difficult poems. I heard the Ancient Mariner when I was eight years old, and I reveled in it. I didn't understand half of it, but the, oh, it was magic. When I used to read poems to my class, I never told them about it, I never asked them about it, I didn't interpret it for them, just leave them with the sound. We should give stories books, we give children books, time and silence. Very often, very often, a story will have an effect on a child that is too private to talk about. To insist that they write down their responses, that they say what it was about and so on, is to kill that. Let it remain in the child, in the silence. Let it come out years later, 10, 20, 30, 40 years later. And they've forgotten about it, everything else about their education, but they remember that Friday afternoon when you told that story and the rain was beating on the windows, but they didn't want to go out because they didn't want to go home because they wanted to hear the end of the story. They never forget the stories you tell. Philip, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you tonight. We've all had a lovely, bloody lovely time. Um, Thank you very much. And uh, I think we should end, end with one more quote. That's the duty of the old, said the librarian, to be anxious on behalf of the young, and the duty of the young is to scorn the anxiety of the old. <laughs> they sat for a while longer, and then parted, for it was late, and they were old and anxious. <laughs> <laughs> To hear more podcasts from the festival, listen and subscribe to Southbank Centre Podcasts on iTunes or soundcloud.com forward slash Southbank Centre. To find out about our upcoming literature events, go to southbankcentre.co.uk forward slash literature. <laughs> <laughs>